Uh, good morning. It is good to be back. And as Jesse said, it has been four weeks, which I've never done before. We'll see if this is like riding a bike, um, if I'll need the training wheels for the first half of the sermon or not. Uh, but I want to do something I, I don't often do, but I want to begin with a uh, confession. Um, one of the things that's always helpful when going away and being able to step away from preaching, which is good and necessary, is realizing that I've been trying to do too much. Um, realize initially when I set out to go through 2 Timothy, had this idealistic picture of uh, these perfect, neat sermon sections that I thought were going to be great, and they have been, but I realized trying to exegete, explain, apply, and illustrate six to eight verses of, of, of Paul is like trying to eat all the food in your refrigerator in one meal. Uh, you can't do it. Now, when I talk to some of our guys, like trying to exegete all of a, a section of Paul is like three chapters of an Old Testament narrative. So uh, we're going to slow down so that we can chew our food and uh, savor the, the, the meal. So we're only looking at primarily two verses this morning um, because they are so helpful to the uh, thrust of the book. But if you're like me, if you forgot already what we talked about four weeks ago and you need a little reminder, we're going to do that. Um, so I want to recap where we were. So uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to give some context because we are picking up in the, the middle of um, what often New Testament writers do. They, they kind of create a sandwich. Uh, we dealt with this in the book of Mark. There's Mark and sandwiches. This is a Pauline sandwich. Uh, and so he sandwiches two ideas as the pieces of bread on the outside, and then there's the uh, meat in the middle. And often what happens when you have these two parallel sections, there's what's called a, a, a Janus section in the middle. And so Janus is a Greek mythology that looks forward and it looks back. So there are two parallel sections, verses 14 through 19 and verses 20 through to 26. Both of these sections contrast the Lord's worker, Timothy, the one who handles the word rightly, and the ones who are working against the Lord, those who distort the word of God, who Timothy has to confront. And then sandwiched in the middle, verses 20 and 21 illustrate, explain, and apply what comes before and what comes after. And that's where we're going to lean in this morning. Uh, and so by way of recap, before we get into our text, uh, in our introduction, I want to go back to verse 19. Because the last time I spoke on it, I touched it briefly. Uh, but I think it's helpful to just reiterate because verse 19 also sets up verse 20 and 21. Verse 19 says, God's firm foundation stands. So before we can talk about the house, every good house needs a stronger foundation. Because if you don't have a strong foundation, when the storms come, when the enemies come, when the calamities come, that house will not stand. Here is that foundation. Here's the, the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. This is the foundation of the house of God. This is the foundation of everything that the Lord is building. God's sovereign knowledge of his plan of redemption and his people. The Lord knows who are his. This is the foundation of everything that, that comes after. It is God himself who builds the house. It is God who lays the foundation. And he seals it. It is sealed in God's decree and God's providence in carrying it out. And so those who are sealed, those who are tied to that firm foundation, 
Let everyone who names the name of the Lord, the elect, the chosen people of God, those whom Christ has died for, and the Spirit brings to new life, and the, the, the Father predestined, let them depart from iniquity. So we get both sides. We get divine sovereignty. God knows who are his, and we get human responsibility. Everyone who bears the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We do have a responsibility in this, as Pastor Jesse just said. And everyone who is rooted, who is firmly founded on the rock, they will depart from iniquity. Because that is the only firm foundation. That is the only worthy foundation, because everything else is sinking sand. Now, you may not know that both of these quotations come from number 16. Now, number 16, we don't have time to go through it all, but there's a family follow-up question. Number 16 is a fascinating and terrifying chapter in the history of Israel. There are a lot of parallels here. If you want to turn there, you can. I just want to bring a couple things to mind, because as Paul looks back to the rebellion of the sons of Korah, there are many parallels to what's going on in Ephesus, the church that Timothy pastors. The sons of Korah, they were, they were Levites. These are men who had responsibility in the temple worship. These are men who are representing, they are the leaders and teachers of the assembly of the people of God. They are those who are up front in the church. They're the ones with greater responsibility and greater influence. And what did they do? They say, Moses and Aaron, we're all holy. Who are you to set yourself above us? Who are you to tell us what to do? We should get as much credit as, as you do. So they raise up 250 men with them. And it's interesting here that in verse 2, they choose great men, men who will stand with them against Moses and Aaron, who God has chosen. This is what happens in the gathered people of God. This is what happens in churches all the time. It has happened throughout history. We're going to choose people that we like who say what we want them to say because we want the glory, not God. Verse 5 should sound familiar. When these, when these men confront Moses, Moses says, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And he will bring near and will bring them, will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will bring near to him. So when they confront Moses, Moses says, The Lord knows where his. He will show you. And so then a competition is put out. You light a fire, we light a fire. Let's see what fire stands. And then Moses puts out a call to all the people of Israel. Let's jump down to verse 26. Actually, I'm gonna start in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation. Be holy, be separate. We'll deal with that more when we get into our text. That I may consume them in a moment. What does God want to do to these people who stand up to him? He wants to destroy them because they deserve it. But Moses, as a good intercessor, falls on his face and says, O oh God, the God, the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you will be angry with all the congregation? That's what a good pastor does. Even when the wicked rise up, and hate him. He pleads for their mercy before their God. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Ibrahim. Verse 26, Moses then speaks to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of those wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away in all their sin. Verse 19, The Lord knows who are his, and those who bear the name of the Lord, they will depart from iniquity. The people who listen, they get out of the way. And what happens? Cut to the end of the story, the next few verses, verse 32. The earth opens up and swallows the sons of Korah and everyone else who sided with them. And the 250 men, they were burned later. This sets up everything that's going to come afterward. This is a picture of God's sovereign election. This is a picture prefiguring final judgment. Because for a time, there will be people in the assembly of God who stand against the word of God and the teachers of God. But they will not last. They will be swallowed up. They will be destroyed. So we have to have that in mind when we get into our text. So hopefully we're good. Hopefully we're caught up. Uh, I want to read in context. I want to begin reading um, in verse 15. I want to read it all in context so you kind of see how these two sections point to what's in the middle. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Paul, speaking to Timothy here, says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenes and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning as your people on your day that you have set apart for your worship, for rest, for refreshment, in the Lord who bought us, because we are a people who are set apart. Lord, I pray for your church. Your church has always been under attack, but it seems like there are times in history when it becomes more the center of the hatred and aggression of the world and the false teachers. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray that you raise up men of conviction, men who stand on the truth of your word, Men who intercede on behalf of their congregation. 
pray that your saints across the globe would purify themselves from what is wicked and what is unrighteous and what is dishonorable. Lord, that your bride may be spotless and mature and stand against the wiles of the evil one. Lord, would you protect and preserve and grow her for the glory of your name and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, picking up in verse 20, the pastoral epistles, those written to individual men, the pastors, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, uh, they are primarily speaking to pastors. These are leaders in the church who need instruction from Paul, but generally, there's wisdom that applies in all churches throughout all ages. And so this particular passage, this illustration, every detail in this illustration has something to teach us about the church. It is necessary to understand our place in not only the world, but the kingdom of God and the operation of that in local churches. Um, each detail we're going to look at this morning parallels and explains and applies this text to local churches. So let's look at the first detail. Now, in a great house. What is the great house here? Most directly, the, the, the great house, not just a little house, the great house, is the global, visible church of the true and living God. Now, theologically, we distinguish between the visible church and the invisible church. Maybe you've heard these terms, maybe you haven't. When you think of the visible church, every gathering of the, the, the people of God in a particular place, it's visible. You can see them. But within every gathering of the visible church, those who are sitting in the pew, this church and everyone, there are those who are truly in Christ, who are regenerated, who have been born again, who are elect from before the foundation of the world. There are sheep and there are also goats. There are the wheat and the tares. In every church, you will sit next to people who read, who sing, who pray, who will one day walk away. That is the visible church. That's all we can see because we can only see with natural eyes. But there's an invisible church. The invisible church is what the Lord sees. The invisible church is made up of all the saints throughout all history. We sit here this morning, we look at one another and we joke, we don't have an elect detector. You know, you don't have the uh, red light or the, or the green light to know where you stand with the Lord, but he knows. And so the invisible church are his people who will stand throughout the ages. This is a good plug for the, the women's uh, conversation today because we're going to be talking a lot about the invisible, visible church. That helps us understand uh, how we view covenant theology and also baptism. Just a little plug there. So the great house is the global visible church, which is an outworking of the greater kingdom paradigm. And so we looked at this, uh, Jesus' example in, in Matthew 13 again, but I want to go back there because Jesus helps us understand, and this is a, a parallel parable. Matthew 13, verse 24. There is in this world, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God came with Christ on earth. The kingdom of God is the, 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 the reign of Christ in the people of Christ on earth. 
But there's also another kingdom that exists alongside the kingdom of God, that confronts and wars against the kingdom of God. This is what's happening in Ephesus. People in the visible church belong to the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, the enemy of Christ. And so Christ explains how this happens and why it happens. And it's, it's fascinating because he pulls back the curtain of the divine plan of redemption and he explains how it is that the sheep and goats sit right next to each other and the wheat and the tares grow up next to one another. Matthew uh, 13, that's it, 23? Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, here's Jesus describing his kingdom, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, the other kingdom, came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together into the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if that's not entirely clear the first time around, that's okay. It wasn't entirely clear to the disciples either, so they need an explanation. Thankfully, Jesus gives us the key to this parable Let's go down to verse 37. They ask, can you explain this parable? Here's what Jesus says. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The kingdom of heaven being sowed in the world. The field is the world. And the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the kingdom of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. He will cleanse his kingdom finally forever. But until he does, those who are cleansed will continue to cleanse themselves. We'll get into that in a moment. And he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are so many details here that we'll be dealing with this morning in our text. So that's why I wanted to go back to it. So just like it happens in the world, it happens in the church. The son of man, the son of God, Jesus Christ, sows, plants, waters, sprouts up sons of the kingdom and the enemy comes and puts weeds right next to him anyone ever planted a garden and how quickly is it when you plant something good a nasty weed that's going to choke out all the life uh, giving nutrients in your soil comes right up next to the good one our enemy is no different so that's the great house now next one the vessels Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So what is a vessel? It's a vessel. A vessel is something that it is a container 
that a master uses to put something in. Just like in our own house, we have many vessels for different purposes. In our own house, we have Tupperware, we have safes, we have milk cartons, we have water bottles. We also have trash cans, we have septic tanks, we have mop buckets, uh, things for good use, honorable use, and things you don't want anyone else to see that you keep in the, in, in the back room because they're, they're, they're not pleasant to look at. The same thing is going on here. Paul says there are not only vessels of, of gold and silver, that's the, the front of the house vessel. You ever worked in, in a restaurant, there's the front of the house and the back of the house. The front of the house, you got to be shaved, you got you, you to gotta look nice, you got you to polish all of the, the glasses and the dishes. The back of the house, those, th- those are guys who don't even shower half the time. Um, they're, they're, they're the ones who are covered in food, in, in grease, and they never let them go out and talk to the customers. So when you enter someone's house for dinner, you think, this guy is nothing but gold and silver. But back there in the kitchen, it's a mess. That's where the wood and the clay are. And in an ancient house, who was it who made the vessels? You couldn't just go to Walmart and pick these things up. You had to have a potter. Jeremiah 18, the Lord himself describes himself as a potter. He says, Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. And as he's making a vessel out of a lump of clay, the lump is spoiled. And it doesn't look right. So he mashes it back up, puts it back on the wheel, and then forms it into something beautiful. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, am I not greater than the potter? Don't you think I can do with you and your nation and any nation what that potter just did with the clay? That's what I'm doing. And he tells Jeremiah, Those who obey me, I will make them into something beautiful. Those who seek me, I will preserve them. I'll put them in the kiln and fire them. But those who disobey me, I will will mash them into a lump and I will throw them in the fire and destroy them. Because the kiln of the potter, it can cure clay. But if you throw it directly into the, the fire for too long, it will melt and it will be destroyed. So the fire refines, and there's so, so many parallels there. So when we think of these vessels, God is the potter. He creates some gold and silver. The gold and silver, those are the front of the house. That's the one you want to show off to all of your, your guests. That's the one you want to be polished, you want to be shined, you want to be presented well for special occasions. Those are the riches of God's glory. But there's also stuff in the back of the house, the wood and the clay, the mop buckets, the garbage cans, the chamber pots, those who are used for temporary uses, undignified uses, that if someone, if if you lose or break a gold dish, you're going to scramble looking for it. You break a clay pot, we'll get another one. And so Paul makes this distinction. One of the things that comes up often in the Old Testament is the word vessel when applied to the temple. Much was made of God, or from God, when he gave direction to Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel to make vessels fit for temple worship. This will come up later. But those vessels had to be fashioned in a particular way. They had to be presented in the temple in a particular way, and they had to be cleansed by water and by blood. And so before we move forward, I want us to think about this, that every person on this earth is a vessel We're all designed to carry something. 
And so when we think about our lives, what do we walk around with? In, in, in Acts chapter 9, during Paul's conversion, the Lord speaks to Ananias and he says, Paul is my chosen vessel to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. What do we carry? What are you known for? What do you carry around inside you? What are you being used for? Are you obedient to how God has designed you? Or do you rail against it? Do you carry more of the world around inside you than the things of God? And just as the Lord knows and creates those who belong to him, he also knows and fashions those who are not his. And he does it for his own purposes. So you may ask, why would God even allow dishonorable vessels? Why not just make everyone an honorable vessel? Number one, because he's God and you're not. But Paul anticipates this question, and he brings it up in Romans 9. Uh, so let's turn to Romans 9. If not, it'll be on the screen. Um, we're from one of the last of Paul's books written um, to the very beginning of the Pauline section of the New Testament. Romans chapter 9. I want to pick up in verse 20. Because it's natural to ask this. It's so natural, Paul anticipates it and includes the question in Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Here's the key. What if God... Picture this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, God wants the world to see his wrath, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that to make known, he wants to make his wrath known, but also the riches of his glory. He uses the vessels of wrath as contrast to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The great potter has a great plan that none of us would have done and none of us would have fathomed. But how would we ever not know, how do we ever know God's mercy if we didn't know the sinful wickedness of the vessels prepared for wrath? How would we, the grace of God that we sing about every week, that the angels rejoice in in heaven. How would you ever know the grace of God if it were not for sin? You wouldn't. And so God, to show his grace and show his mercy, prepares vessels for, for, for wrath. And our potter does not do anything by mistake. He, he crafts with great intention. He is the almighty God. And he has a purpose for everyone whom he creates. But let's talk about the vessels of honor first. Believers, saints in here, take comfort because he did not make a mistake when he made you. He made us all different and he made us with a purpose. Your personalities, your abilities, they are made in the image of God and they can glorify God. And there is a way that each one of you uniquely glorify God that I can't or the person sitting across from you can't. But the problem is, we bring sin to the table. And what can glorify God can easily glorify ourselves. 
But no, God did not make a mistake when he made you. I think there is a temptation. I've said it, had conversations with many of you. God, why did you make me like this? Why do I keep struggling with this? Why am I not like this person? Why have I, I I've been given these gifts? I'm silver. I want to be gold. God, why? That's a question we all ask. But what we should do is learn to say, since you have made me like this, since you have made me like this, how can I glorify you? Because his grace shines brightest in our weakness. He is most glorified when the weakest, most pitiful looking vessels give glory to his name in obedience and joy. His glory, his grace shining in weakness. In a great house, there are all types of honorable vessels, and they all serve in different ways. And God did not make a mistake when he made you. I need to repeat this because some of you need to hear this again and again. He knows what he's doing. Even the dishonorable vessels serve the master's purpose. King Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked pagan king, God himself calls him his servant. King Cyrus, a wise but another wicked pagan king, God calls him his shepherd. This is our God. He turns pagan, wicked men into servants and shepherds and uses them for a time to discipline and reward his people. He's still doing it today. Just like we see it in the world, that God uses spoiled lumps of, of clay, he does it in the church too. It is the same in every church. Some will come for a time and then they'll leave. Some will come for a time, and they will depart, and they will fall away. We've seen it in this church. If you've been in the church for a long time, you, you've, you've seen it. People you could have sworn are Christians and are walking with the Lord will one day deny him. The wheat are growing up next to the weeds, but God uses them for his purpose, for his time. So this is the reality in verse 20. This is the uh, general principle. So Paul is saying, since this is true, Therefore, what do we do with it? The next verse explains what separates these vessels and what is required of these vessels. So we are still in 2 Timothy, I promise. Uh, 2 Timothy, verse 21 now. Therefore, therefore, since everything else is true, since we've established this foundation, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Just like the vessels in the temple, vessels must be cleansed for honorable use. There's a great picture of this in Proverbs 25, 4. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen real quick. Take away the dross from silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. No one makes a silver vessel without taking all the impurities out first. Once you remove the dross, what is dishonorable, now the smith the one who's making the vessel, he's got something to work with. So, as with the pastoral epistles, this begins with the pastors. Pastor, Timothy, leader, you want to be, be used honorably? You want to glorify me? Cleanse yourself. Get rid of what is old. Put off the old man. Put your sin to death. 
Now, we've got an example of that. What is dross? What is dishonorable in the great house? So in our context, it's false teachers. If you look back, verse 16 through 18, but avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness. The talk spreads like gangrene. Hyamenes and Philetus are upsetting the faith of some. If you look forward, the same problem in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know how they breed quarrels. And the rest of it is how you can, Timothy, as the Lord's servant, correct them with the word of God. This begins with the leaders in the church as an example. The most egregious example, or one of the most uh, deliberated, is in the book of Galatians. The entire book of Galatians is false teachers arising up with a false gospel. What does Paul say to those false teachers? Go ahead and make it a full circumcision. You want to circumcise? Go all the way. Don't, don't just stop at the top. That's, what, that's how serious Paul is with the gospel. So Timothy, first and foremost, cleanse yourself from the false teachers. But there's also, not just false teachers, there's plenty of sinful actions that you need to avoid, you need to cleanse yourself from. That's why the very next verse, verse 22, so... Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I want to look at a few verses in succession here because I think as, as we think about this, what does this cleansing look like? How do we define it? How do we work it out? How do we, how do we practice it? Um, let's let Paul and John help us here. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that unrighteousness, uh, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's that, that, that kingdom language again. The, 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 the contrast between do not be deceived. There's other people, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality. Uh, this is the theme section for the month of June nor uh, thieves, nor, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the gospel good news, and such were some of you. This is what the gospel means. The gospel means, as Paul goes on, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of your God. The gospel means you are cleansed for the kingdom. That Christ, the blood of Christ, splashed upon unworthy, dishonorable vessels makes them worthy. You were these things. You were an ugly, unusable pot in the hands of the potter. But he sends his son and he remakes you into his image and now you are beautiful. You are sanctified. You are washed. The cleansing begins with the justification that happens through the finished work of Christ. That begins the process. So Timothy, cleanse yourself. Get rid of these old things. Have nothing to do with them in your life or in your church. And and honorable vessels who have been cleansed will continue to cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. So, this is the the, uh, process. Um, Paul goes into it a little bit more in Romans 6. Kind of gives us an instruction of what to do. And as as we read this, I want us to think about this. Does this describe my life? Do I view my new life in in, in Christ in this way? Romans chapter 6, verse 12. 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments or vessels for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments or vessels for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law but under grace." Brothers and sisters, do you know that you are under grace? Do you know that God has brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light? That he wants you to be instruments for for righteousness, to leave behind the slavery to sin, to let it no longer uh, reign in your mortal bodies? Or do you walk around feeling shackled and burdened, continually trying to atone for your own sin, carrying around the ball and chain of your past failures? Instead of them place, placing them at the foot of the cross where they belong. And so how do we do this? I love First John for this. Practically, what does this look like? And this is not rocket science. This is simple Christian living. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you. Here is John saying, I stood before the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard the gospel. Here's the good news, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you are in Christ, the darkness has no more power over you. It may influence you. It may tempt you. But you are now in the kingdom of the God of light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So again, we begin with the sovereignty of God. This is God's kingdom. He knows those who are his. Yet there's a responsibility, the other side of the coin of the Christian life. Depart from iniquity. Cleanse yourself from unrighteousness. Here's John. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Does your identity in Christ and your life in the world contradict one another? Do they line up? Do what Christ has done in your heart in the inside match what you do on the outside? Or what you love in your heart? Okay, so John, I need some more practical advice here. How do I do that? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Here's why the local church is so important. Here's why we need one another. Because if I'm walking in the light and you're walking in the light and someone else is walking next to us in the light, How dark do you think that that path will be? But if this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine and no one else is around, that's not too bright when there's darkness all around you. But if you walk in the light, and it's contagious. When other believers walk alongside you and they are pursuing the Lord, they are cleansing themselves. Like, I want that. And then it seems attainable because I'm I'm seeing you do it. And then we, we, we spur one another on and we encourage one another. And so that the fellowship we have one another, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is why we need to walk with other believers. Because you need to be reminded and I need to be reminded. Aren't you covered by the blood of Christ? Hasn't Christ already paid for that? He's the one who cleansed us on the cross. We're not starting from scratch. We're not beginning this in our own strength. He has cleansed us. He has made us gold. He has made us silver. Now we got to polish ourselves up a little bit. We're not, we're not creating ourselves something new. We look to the blood who has cleansed us. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Be honest. 
one of the big problems with Christians is we try to act like we've got it all together. We want other Christians and the world around us to think we don't sin anymore. We don't have any struggles. You're a liar. We sin. Deal with it. And what do you do when you sin? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at this pattern of the Christian life. Walk with other believers. Remember the gospel. Confess your sin and repent. Turn from them because he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't want you to read this, this text about, oh, I'm a vessel now, I've got to cleanse myself and hear moralism. No. Christ cleansed you at the cross, and he continues to cleanse you. But there is an active role we play in this. We're not robots. You're, you're, you're a sinner. Join the club. Confess your sins. Lord, I'm a sinner. I struggled in this. Please forgive me, and he will, and he has. And he'll continue to cleanse you. But too many Christians are so prideful. They don't want to admit their sins to the Lord or to one another. And they struggle in the same sins over and over again. How do we cleanse ourselves? We be honest about how dirty and wretched we are. But we look to the purity of Jesus Christ on the cross. All right. So if we do, if we do cleanse ourselves, we will be vessels for honorable use. This is a guarantee. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be. Those who are cleansed will continue to cleanse themselves. This is what I want you to see before we go any further, before we think about any work, before we get into the house. What is imperative, what is essential, what is primary in the kingdom of God is spiritual cleanliness. It is everything. So many people are so worried about cleaning themselves up on, on the inside, and they take no account of their heart. Proverbs 26, 23 is helpful here too. It'll be on the screen. Proverbs 26, 23. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Man, how many people does that describe? How many people put a glaze on the outside, try to pretty themselves all up to cover the ugliness within? This is not lip service, brothers and sisters. This is true cleansing. Do you think the almighty God of the universe cares more about your accomplishments than your heart? Every time I talk to someone who's like, oh, if I just made more money, I could do more big things from God. Really? You think that highly of yourself? You think God needs you to do big things for him? He doesn't. He doesn't care. You know what he cares about? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love my people? It is not so in the eyes of God as it is in the eyes of man. This is a heart condition. And those who truly do it, they will be uh, set apart. They will be useful and they'll be ready. These three modifiers uh, describe what makes the vessel for honorable use. Uh, i got to move along here. So I have four weeks of stuff to, to, to put in here. Um, <laughs> Uh, all right, so three modifiers. Number one, Paul says here, if you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, you will be a vessel for honorable use. Number one, set apart as holy. 
set apart as holy. These are, these are synonyms. Um, I don't want to get too technical here, but in the Greek, this is a very particular way of, of saying this. This perfect passive participle. Um, say that five times fast. Only for the fact of saying, this is a way of, of saying, you have been set apart. You are being set apart. And the one who set you apart, because you didn't do it yourself, he'll continue to set you apart. This is a passive work on us, meaning we are not actively doing this. It's done in the, it's done in the past, and it continues to have effects going on. This is a, a, a beautiful um, verb tense that, that, that we, don't, we don't have in English. But think about it. The God who created and designed you as this gold vessel, he makes you, you holy. And the more you are used, the more holy you become. And the one who began it promised and continues to keep making you holy. When I was in seminary, we had to read a lot of pages of Herman Bobbink. Um, a lot. He wrote four big volumes of Reformed dogmatics. I remember one line, but it's a really good one. Um, he talks about the entire Christian life is that of becoming what you are. You are gold. You are silver. And when you grow and when you cleanse yourself and when you mature, you are becoming what you already are. You are growing into the shoes that were too big for you when they're given to you. But what a beautiful picture. Those who are set apart, they will continue to set themselves apart. They will continue to look more like Christ. They will continue to shine like gold. And they will desire more and more what the one who set them apart loves. And so the potter, through his spirit, he's the one who makes sanctified vessels. we got to begin with the potter. But once the potter has made us and sanctified us, then through our faithful work and obedience, we continue to be sanctified and shine for the master of the part, master of the house who has set us apart for his service. A cheap dish will always be a cheap dish. You can never turn a paper plate into fine china. But the same thing with a silver dish. An expensive, honorable gift dish will always be honorable. I don't know much you know about silver, but if you don't polish it, if you don't attend to it, it tarnishes. If you've seen a tarnished silver dish, it looks nothing like, like, like silver. It's got all these browns and blues and greens in it. And, and if you didn't know what you were looking at, you would throw it away. But it's always silver. And so silver, if you polish it, if you clean it, buff it, it will shine. Throughout most of history, mirrors were made out of silver. Because once they were polished and shined, they were they could clearly reflect what is right in front of them. That is such a beautiful picture of the Christian life. God has created you, recreated you in Christ to be this honorable vessel. And then when polished, it will reflect beautifully whatever it faces. I, I, I just picture a butler with, with, with white gloves who's polishing all the, the, the dinnerware and the silverware for the great wedding feast and all the, the uh, guests who, who are going to come in. This is the Christian life. We have been made gold and silver, and we, we polish ourselves up because we want to shine for the feast of the master. And so I want to ask, what do you resemble? The polished silver or the, the tarnished silver? Do you shine? 
Do you reflect the one who has fastened, who has fashioned you? I think about those people in our body who reflect that. And we've got many of them here. Those who are such a blessing to be around. Those who are so joyful. Those who the name of the Lord is always on their lips. They don't want any, any credit. They are never critical like I am. They are great in, in, encouragers. And you're like, man, what a polished, beautiful dish. The master would be pleased to have his feast presented in this, in this vessel. But I think many of you are content being tarnished silver. I think many of you are content like, ah, Christ has already done the work. I'm good enough. I'd rather do all these other things. Could you imagine our master serving a feast with dirty dishes? Would Jesus ever feed his, his guests with tarnished silver? We should desire to be useful. So Paul continues here. You're set apart, useful to the master. Here's the second um, descriptor. Those who cleanse themselves, those who prepare themselves, those are the ones who will be the most useful. And, and before we go any further, just think about that. Isn't that incredible that the Lord would use us? That he would take lumps of clay that he took literally from the dust of the earth and he would shape them into vessels for glory. Do you ever just marvel? Why would God choose me? Why would God use me? I am, I am never asking in Romans 9, like, why would you even make dishonorable vessels? I'm still trying to figure out why he would use me. Because if I was God, I wouldn't use me. But he chose us to build his kingdom, to proclaim his name. How useful of a vessel are you? If you were to take account of your life, does it look more like clay or more like gold? Is it useful to the kingdom? Do you ever complain that God isn't using you or that God seems different? Maybe a question we should ask ourselves is, do I spend as much time cleansing myself from the things of the world as I do complaining about the world or about what I do have or do not have? How useful are we as silver punch bowls to serve the people of God? How useful are we to drink from if we'd rather be splashing around in the mop bucket back in the kitchen? This is the picture of Christians who are more content with the things of the world. Christians who know more about what's going on in the news or know more about Netflix than they do the word of God. Christians who can sing every song on the radio but do not sing praises to their God. How useful are we if we're slumming it in the kitchen with the dirty dishes when we should be serving the feast with the vessels of honor? Loving what the world loves and doing what the world does. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 explains this well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, you've all heard the term, probably, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, we, and it's rightly applied to marriage, but it's applied to the entire Christian life. I want you to look at the context. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Here's the two kingdoms again. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? It's not just talking about don't get married to an unbeliever. That you should not do. But don't go through life letting unbelievers be your, 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 your counselors, letting them be your, your influence, acting like you're coming from the same frame of reference. You live, you're citizens of two different kingdoms. Here's, Paul takes it even further. What accord has Christ with Belial, a false god? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I would counsel you, don't even start a business with an unbeliever. You ethically are not on the same page. I've seen it happen. It blows up in your face. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We read this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Sound familiar? Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Do you want to be welcomed by the world or do you want to be welcomed by Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. This brings together the cleansing and the separation for the work of God. It brings us all the way back to verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his, and those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will depart from iniquity. Get away from the sons of Korah. You know what happens to the sons of Korah? You know what happens to the sons of this kingdom? Those who serve the prince of the power of the air, the earth is going to swallow them up and they will be destroyed. Do you want to be near that? I don't want to be anywhere near the edge when the earth opens up and swallows them up. Run the other way. This is what Paul is saying. You are the temple of the living God. You have been cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ for his worship and his service. Why would you fraternize? Why would you love and be in partnership? with the world that is going to hell. How silly is that? Make friends with those who you will spend eternity with. That's the point here. Those who've cleansed themselves, they'll be useful for the master. And then their landing, they'll be ready for every good work. Look at how this just beautifully progresses. This is how we are useful. This is what Christ has done in us. This is the same verb tense from earlier. Someone made you ready. They completed what is necessary, and they're still helping you carry it out. This is the outpouring of the gospel. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But don't forget verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel tells us we are cleansed for the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ died for us. Not because we were good workers. Not because we were worthy vessels, when in fact we were quite the opposite. We were unworthy vessels. 
But by his grace, we are now made honorable vessels. And you know what? This is so much a part of God's plan. We go back to the election of God again, which God the Father prepared beforehand. When? Before what? Before yesterday? Before creation. God's plan was to send his son to redeem a bride that they would work in his house. That they would be pleasing to him. That they would shine like gold and silver. That they would show the riches of his glory. This is the gospel. Not just to be sit and content as tarnished silver. But to be zealous and excited and joyful. That God by his grace has saved me. Now I get to work. Because he's made me honorable. He redeems us to, for his work to build his house. Let's do it. Let's get to work. Joyful work. Because we are working for the one who redeemed us. We are working for our Savior, who also happens to be the master of this house. And the house that he's creating for us is much better than this one. And so when we work, we're not just working in this house, meaning these four walls in this church. We're working in the great house, the global church of the, of the true and living God, the invisible church, the saints, the members of the kingdom of God. We work alongside our brothers and sisters, stirring one another on. And I want to conclude with some encouragement, but one last challenge. If you are building any other foundation than that of Christ, it will be destroyed. It cannot stand. It is sinking sand. And woe to those who are working dishonorably in the great house. Woe to the false teachers and the false prophets. Woe to the false gospels that upset the faith of Christ's little lambs. There is a special extra hot portion of hell reserved for them. Depart from them. Have nothing to do with them. But for the rest of you, my brothers and sisters this morning, I just want you to take a moment and reflect and rejoice at what God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, has done in us. That he desires to use us in his house, his church. He made us new so that we would be useful. He remakes us ugly lumps into vessels of gold and silver for good use. He uses our feeble efforts. Yes, even your little pitiful efforts. Done for the love of the Lord and the name of Christ will shine for eternity. What an honor to be in service of the king. What an honor to labor in his kingdom. Because this building will pass away. Pew covers are beautiful. Windows look much better. But his church will never pass away. His saints will go on forever. And also, we can rejoice that there are different types of vessels. You wouldn't want a bunch of yous running around. The Lord has made us all differently for different parts of the feast. This is the nature of the body of Christ. Just like the body has many members, there are many types of vessels. And they're all useful for different purposes. Every member plays a part. And every member, I want you to hear this, every member of the body of Christ, every member of this church who serves joyfully, you will receive a great reward. And many of you will receive one greater than mine. Just because I'm, I'm standing up here doesn't mean I have a greater reward. I don't always serve as joyfully as I should. 
Some of you are, could run circles around me in joy and encouragement and thankfulness and graciousness and peace and love. We praise God for you, and the body needs you, and I'm thankful to be a part of a church like this. I, I, I truly am. One of the things that just uh, is so humbling to hear how often people visit, and they are, they are amazed at the prayer and the encouragement and the conversation. Like, I've never been to a church where after the church is done, you guys are still talking about the Bible. You're still talking about God. Because you visit a, a lot of churches, as soon as the service is done, it's football, it's politics, it's, it, it's whatever. I hear so many calls. I get texts and emails throughout the week. I had this happen, but so-and-so visited me. This was going on, but this person prayed with me. You are in each other's homes. You are serving and loving one another. You are rejoicing with one another, crying with one another. It is so amazing to be a part of a church like this with people who know that they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and they want to cleanse themselves and they want to be useful and they are, they are ready and they are doing good works and I am honored to be a part of it. And so all I need to say is keep it up because it is contagious. This is why we meet together. This is why we need the local church even though there are weeds growing up among the wheat. Hebrews 10 tells us we gather so that we, in worship, we stir one another up to love and, and good works. So very often, you are the butler that helps your brother and sister shine. You're the one with the white gloves just polishing off our little tarnished edges. Do that for one another. Help one another be useful. Because the Lord has fashioned us for his service, and he's given us that desire. Let us walk in it boldly. I'm going to close this with the words of Ephesians 5, and then we will approach the table. It's kind of an exhortation benediction. This will be my closing prayer. And I'll give you time after that in silence to reflect on the word and prepare yourself for the table. Look carefully then how you walk. This is Ephesians 5, 15. Not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of the Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ.